In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Hey, hey, happy Sunday to you all. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Two-hour show tonight because Vinny is away, but he'll be back next weekend. So uh, thanks for sticking around for a little bit. Uh, we're inching up to September. I know that this is not news that people like to hear, but um, it is sort of when a lot of people feel that summer really ends is when like we hit September 1st and it's like, all right, summer done. We're getting into like pre I saw Halloween candy and Halloween decorations at the dollar store this week. I also walked in the dollar store and they had a big poster like they were advertising something great and it said, we now have items that are two and three dollars. I feel like that's not something you should put at the front. And it said, but we still have things that are a dollar. I needed tape. That's why I was in there. Um, so I'd like to know, text in 71010. Let me know when summer feels like it's over for you. For some people, it's when your kids go back to school. For some, it's when you're doing like pre-Thanksgiving because, you know, into September, we tend to have still fairly decent weather. So text in 71010. I'd love to share your texts. And uh, let me know at what point you feel like, yeah, summer is over. It might have to do with when the C&E wraps up. For me, it's when I have to wear socks with shoes because I basically can go two months of the year, three months, no, more than three months, uh, not having to wear socks unless it's just at the gym. But otherwise, I don't have to wash socks pretty much ever. Or if I need to like zip up a jacket, because there's some days, like last week we had a few cool nights where you might put on a light sweater, but you don't have to zip anything up. Um, or this is another sign that summer's over for me, when you still try to sit on a patio, but you ask to sit near the portable heater. That's when, that's when summer's over, guys. And if you're wearing a toque, summer's definitely over. So text in 71010. Um, if you miss a show, just to let you know, you can always catch the podcast online. It's on my site, paychen.com. It's also uh, found in the iTunes store. Uh, last week, I had a really fun show. I had three great female uh, comedians on the show, and we did a great panel. We played a really wonderful, friendly game of racist or not racist. And I think I want to make this a semi-regular thing. It might be a challenge, though. Um, one story I didn't get to share, though, which really made my life because I had asked people on Twitter and on Facebook about their stories and all kind of like tongue in cheek. Like We can all laugh about it. We all find it somewhat amusing right now. Um, but uh, my friend Connie, who is Asian, she uh, sent me a story on Facebook and said that she was in a convenience store in Scotland where she noticed that a guy kept kind of smiling and following her around this really tiny little store. So it started to make her a bit uncomfortable. So when she realized he was kind of following her in circles in this convenience store, she decided just to stop and pretend like she was looking at, you know, or interested in whatever was in front of her. Well, she had stopped in front of the, like, instant noodle section, like the Mr. Noodle cup of soup stuff. So she was hoping that he would just, like, keep going instead he stopped and he slides up next to her and he says so can you recommend a flavor for me and uh <laughs> connie's like I, I don't i don't know but i i feel like chicken is a pretty safe bet and the guy says in all seriousness he says I only ask because it's your country's cuisine and I would trust your recommendation. So, races are not races. Great game, right? Because pretty much it's just fun. It's 
It's giggles. So, two hours of delicious racist-free show tonight. Maybe. I don't know. It's just starting. Coming up later, nutritionist Leanne Phillipson-Webb will be back with some uh, meal planning ideas, whether it's for your school lunches or even just for you. The office needs some inspiration and you're kind of tired of uh, brown bagging it. She's got some great ideas. And we'll be giving away also um, some of the meal plans that she has on her website, which is SproutRight.com. Also, there's a lot of angry almond milk drinkers who discovered that uh, their brand of almond milk barely contains any actual almonds at all. There was a big hoopla over it this past uh, past week. So Leanne's going to talk a bit about milk al- alternatives. So your soy, your you know almond milk, um, and the pros and cons of those. And as someone who's been drinking almond milk for years, I am very curious to know where, that I've been basically throwing my money away for watered-down almond milk. Um, and after 9 p.m., what do you know about garlic? Probably not much. So I'm going to talk to the founder of the Toronto Garlic Festival about his new book, which charts the history of Ontario garlic. And uh, he'll tell you why you should check out the Toronto Garlic Festival in a couple of weeks. But uh, my first guest in studio is part of a new Food Network show debuting tomorrow night at 10 p.m. It's called Chef in Your Ear. And uh, Chef Rob Rossi is here from Bastellan Restaurant here in Toronto. So it's on College Street, it's right? on College Street, that's yep. correct. And uh, you were also, I think if your name sounds familiar to people, it's because you were also the runner-up for the first season of Top Chef Canada. Doesn't it feel like a really long time ago? Because I remember watching that show. It was a long time ago. It was, um, <laughs> I think that was about six years ago, seven wow. years ago. Wow. Maybe even eight years ago. No. No, not that long, seven? could it? Seven. Now I feel like I'm aging very quickly. <laughs> I, we all are, aren't we? No, we look the same, Rob. <laughs> we look the same. Um, so you got to be a part of this really cool new competition cooking show on the Food Network. And it's a little different than a lot of the competition shows that exist out there because it pits pros like yourself, yeah. so actual chefs, um, with people who have no idea what they're doing in the kitchen. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the incredible things about the show is that as chefs, we're not actually cooking. Which is, uh, Which is different yeah, for a cooking um, show. Exactly. So that's that's the challenging part for us. We have our own set of challenges. And then, of course, the competitors have their set of challenges and we all try to have to mingle together and at the end of it all someone does in fact win one of the episodes. So now how does it work because you um the professional chefs yourself and an, and another chef so basically two chefs per episode sort That's of correct, compete yeah. against each other you are each paired with someone who does not know how to cook and yeah. you and you talk them through it, right? Exactly. I mean it's they they have they certainly have an interest in it. They want to be able to do it. In some cases, it's because, you know, they, they want to cook for their family, but, you know, they just can't do it and their family doesn't like the food or <laughs> uh, they just want to they just want to be able to cook, but they don't know how to cook. And that's the biggest thing. So it's it's a true challenge. And, you know, a lot of times they're, they're, they have to get acclimated just to the idea of cooking. Yeah. Now, how does it because you're not in the kitchen with them. That's the other thing. So the twist no. with this show is you have to be a very good communicator. That's right. So we can't, I can see them through monitors. So we have a little monitor we can use. Mm -hmm. uh, And obviously we need to use that. We use that. uh, We have the cameras that are at our will. We can follow them around. They can't see us. They can only hear us. So they're wearing little earpieces. They're wearing earpieces. And that's about as far as communication goes for them. On their side of it, that's all they can do. They just hear us. Right. Hence chef in your ear. 
And for us, I can see them and I can hear them, but I can't see them in person. I can't smell any food. I can't touch anything. Oh. Uh, we're essentially quarantined, for lack of a better word, to stay away and to to sort of direct them the way that we know how to direct, uh, you know, our team members, which is, you know, verbally. A lot of times it's verbally. And, yeah. And there has to be a trust factor there. So So that's... you are just, you're in a totally different room. You, you know, there are cameras that are uh, shooting whatever, their action so that you yeah. can see what's happening. Exactly. But, you know, you would, even though you might have the urge to like grab that ingredient or oh, you grab do it. their hand, you can't. No, no, no. You can't do it. And a lot of times the the simplest things are the hardest ones because you're like, no, put it on this side. Turn it like that. Turn yeah. it like this. Well, you know, there's so many ways to turn a vegetable. <laughs> you'd be surprised. <laughs> Was that something you learned when you did yeah. this? You say turn it over, they turn it the opposite way. No, turn it this way. And then all of a sudden it goes, it's it's just, it's it's craziness. And a lot of times you have to think on the fly and you have to be able to change the way that you wanted the dish to be. Because mm -hmm. ultimately we're not we're not doing it. And if they're not capable of doing some of the techniques, then the techniques need to be altered. Right. Because uh, the dish does need to be produced. That's so the I know that, uh, you know, some of our listeners are, uh, because I do talk about food a lot on the show, a lot of the listeners are fairly decent cooks. Some of them may want to be better. Yep. So I think that that's where people, viewers will relate to to the cooks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're totally relatable because... A lot of people at home don't know how to cook. Sadly, they don't. Mm -hmm. And um, Or they know how to cook one thing. <laughs> yeah, they know how to cook one thing. And, you know, sometimes they elaborate on that. You know, ultimately, I think the goal of the show is to get people to understand that cooking is important. Mm -hmm. Cooking can be fun. And it's essential. Like, everyone needs to know how to cook. Yeah. And I, like, that's one big thing for me is I, I wish I met more people that had a passion for cooking. Other than chefs, you know. Because yeah. I, I really think... Our, our cuisine as a whole would would develop more and people would, mm -hmm. we would just appreciate things more. You know, coming up after the break, you're going to stick around. I want to talk to you. We'll talk a little bit more about the show. We'll talk a bit also, um, you know, for our, for the listeners, they can text in if you want. If you want, if you have a question or even a cooking question for Rob, you can text in 71010. And uh, we'll also, you know, I guess share some tips because you're the pro here mm -hmm. and now you've really been able to coach some people who have no idea what they're doing. I have more experience now. <laughs> yeah, you are, you're a better mentor than you were, you know, before the summer. Um, so I think you'll be able to share some great tips. And I'd love to ask you about, you know, your favorite ingredients coming into fall, cool. best kitchen tools, that sort of thing. So if you do have a question for Rob Rossi, you can text in at 71010. Right now we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Pay Chen Show here on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in tonight. Uh, my guest in studio right now is Chef Rob Rossi from Bastellan Restaurant in Toronto. Also uh, a contestant on the first season of Top Chef Canada. And we were just sort of reminiscing about the shows that we used to watch on the Food Network. And on the line, we're joined by Devin Connell, also one of the uh, professional chefs on Chef In Your Ear, who owns Delica Kitchen. Hi, Devin. Hi, Pei. How are you? I'm doing well. Rob and I are just like talking about our favorite Food Network shows from years past. Oh, nice. Hey, Rob. And we're pretty certain that, uh, well, I was just saying that Chef in Your Ear, the new show that's debuting tomorrow night at 10, uh, 
it will probably do quite well because it's, you know, people are liking the competition shows, but also they want to get something from it, like a little tip or, you know, learn something. And that's very much what you guys are, are doing on the show. So just to recap a little bit, the premise of the show is that two professional chefs, like the two of you, and there's other uh, chefs on the show, you each get paired up with someone who does not know what they're doing. And is it that someone that's just not a very good cook? Or like, Devin, how would you describe these contestants? Um, that's exactly how I would describe them. <laughs> they're not very good cooks. Um, I would say their confidence is extremely lacking. I think there's a real willingness for these people to want to learn how to cook. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why they're there. And they're passionate, I think, about food in some way, whether it's just eating or going out to restaurants. But um, they're they're terrified about how to how to cook and how to be in the kitchen and so it's it's pretty interesting so and the uh i guess the show premise and how it works is that uh you are in another room where you have monitors so you get to see them cooking and you coach them through earpieces so never are you in the same room never do you get to show them how to do something first no never and it's so hard there's been (laughs) so many times where the chefs like we just wanted to run out of the booth and like just jump in there and do it ourselves but trying to coach somebody to to cook something when you can't see them is such a huge challenge but in a way is sort of what happens in a professional kitchen when you have a a big group of people and like you've got to get them to get those meals out and you can't always do it yourself so it kind of brings true a little bit to how it works in real life in a, in a real professional kitchen. Now I've got, uh, so Rob, I'll ask you this because you've done uh, other, you've done uh, several other TV shows before and you've done a competition show when yep. you did Top Chef. So when you're presented with the idea of doing another sort of competition show, which is quite different, and they said to you, so here's the thing, you're going to talk them through it. Um, how different was your expectation when you heard that versus the reality? Uh, well, I mean, the reality of it was that it's very difficult. And when I was approached to do the show, originally I was thinking, well, if I had to compete again, I probably wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't think it was going to be as challenging, actually not cooking, but it's, it's almost more challenging. Why would you say that? Um, because at least when you're cooking, you're in control of your own thing and you can sort of, you know, you're, you're just listening to your mind. And in this regard, you know, you're not. And, you know, like Devin was saying, you know, I can't even talk to Devin during this. How are you, Dev, by the way? <laughs> How are you? Good. Yeah, so like she's in her own place, I'm in my own place, and you're just isolated. Oh, so you aren't even you aren't even next to each other at well, all. Well, I can see her or mm-hmm. Craig or Corey or, you know, Jordan. Um, we can see each other through the glass, but we can't, you know, we're not in communication with each other either. So it's not like the professional chefs are, you know, congregating together. No. It's just you're just by yourself. So it's tough. Um what what do these cooks have in common? I have an idea because you're you're telling me that uh, you know they they don't know what they're doing, and I think some people can relate to. I think a lot of people can relate to, you know, um, not being super confident in the kitchen, or maybe only having a couple of things that they feel that they can actually pump out. So, what would you say all of the cooks had in common, Devin? I would say was that they had a real willingness to learn like they they wanted to prove something to like a family member that they had cooked a horrible meal for once and they wanted to prove them wrong or um, they were dating a new girl and they wanted to show off like a new dish so it was 
they were all there to really learn something. And I think that's what was so fun for us as the chefs was that we really felt that we were trying to teach something to people that were truly interested in becoming better cooks. And they weren't just there to have fun and goof off. It was like, you know, they wanted to, they wanted to become better cooks. And, and so I think that was the common thread throughout all of the, the amateurs that, that were on the show. I think there, and there, there's a pressure of um, living up to you as well <laughs> as the coach, right? Li- living up to a sure. professional chef who's telling them what to do. Uh, can you give me an idea of just how bad these contestants were? Um, <laughs> well, uh, without giving too much away, um, it ranged from cooks that had like only experience using a microwave. No, really? Um, As a oh, primary yeah, cooking like, tool? Like frozen oh, food. Yeah, like, oh, unbelievable. yeah. Unbelievable. I had one guy who like attempted to cook chicken fingers and left them in an oven for three weeks. Like he forgot that he left them in there. Like it's, it was, it was pretty crazy. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a little bit of a taste a of bit. what we were dealing with. Rob, anything to add to that? Oh man, like, there's so much stuff. Uh, people confusing <laughs> salt for sugar. Well, it looks the same. You know, it can, I suppose. Depends where <laughs> you keep it, how you store it. I don't really know, but um, none of it's really none of it's fake. That's for sure. I mean, they they certainly don't have any experience, uh, but they do want to try. Like Devin said, mm-hmm. they do want to learn. And I think that's one of the most important things for us because we we do want to teach them. Um, so it makes it kind of cool. Like we just, you know, it's very rewarding to see them actually pull off dishes when, you're, you know, you're talking to someone like Devin was saying that they leave chicken wings in the oven for, you know, God only knows how long. It's pretty amazing at out, the end right? of it. <laughs> I hope so too. Maybe turn them into powder or something. I don't know. Into something else. Um, my guests right now are uh, Chef Rob Rossi from Bastellan Restaurant in Toronto and Devin Connell from Delica Kitchen, who are both uh, part of a new Food Network show called Chef in Your Ear, which debuts tomorrow night at 10 p.m. on Food Network. And uh, the premise of the show is that they coach amateur, basically clueless cooks, and you coach them to complete a full is it a full meal or just one dish? Um, well, it's it's one dish, yeah. yeah. But I mean, the dish can be comprised of you know a many couple different, of different things, yeah. right? Like a protein and a side and exactly. like all that sort of yep. thing. Um, what sort of mistakes did you see? I guess Devin, I'll throw this to you first. What mistakes did you see repeated? I would say not tasting as they went along. So I would constantly have to ask my cook to taste as they went along because I ha- I could see what they were doing, but I had no idea how it tasted. And I think that's a one one key thing that that amateur cooks or people that are uncomfortable in the kitchen often do as a mistake is that they don't taste as they go along, and that's sort of a key thing that you have to do is just taste for seasoning the whole way through. And so, constantly asking uh, my cooks to to taste the food as we went along. Rob, what about you? Um, Devin has that's probably the best example, but I think for me this is more like. Um, uh, the idea behind it, a lot of the times they're so close-minded. Okay. And that's a mistake, I think, because really it's like, ooh, I don't want to try that. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. how do you broaden your cooking skills when you don't want to try anything? And I think that was a reoccurring theme for me because I was trying to use, you know, I wasn't using crazy things, but I was trying to certainly use things that 
they haven't seen before, they haven't tasted, they haven't cooked. Can with. you give me an example of something that might be? Oh, I mean, look, you know, for us, you know, radicchio wouldn't, or triviso lettuce would be pretty standard. Right. You know, but um, for someone that's never strayed away from romaine lettuce. Well, then it's very different. That's wild. It's it's wild. It's crazy. So a lot of times it's like, oh, I don't want to try that. Or anchovies, uh, ew. It's like, <laughs> well, you know, you should really try them, you know. <laughs> Try them for a minute, cause you know we're gonna we're gonna show you how to use them properly. So it almost sounds like you're like a, a kid's reaction. Ew, yeah, they're and little the, fish. And, and the thing <laughs> is too, it's like if if why would we steer you into something that we <laughs> we thought was gross? You know, obviously we we believe in it, right? So. All right, well, you're going to stick around um, because after the break, we'll talk a little bit more about this, and I'd like to get some kitchen tips from you as well. So if you have a question, you can always text in during the show at uh, 7, 10, 10. And, um, you know, I I feel like, I, you know, we're not making them sound bad by saying that they're clueless because they know that when they come on the show. Like, they're not, pretend, they're not pretending that they have skills. No. Like, they're, <laughs> they're pretty honest about it. Well, I, they couldn't lie about it. I mean, they just... <laughs> There was no skill set there. And did you like try to test them out in the first few minutes just to get a sense of where they were at? I think that's something that uh, is better to be saved for tomorrow. <laughs> I think you'll you'll see how it all plays out. All right. Well, we'll continue this conversation with chefs uh, Rob Rossi and Devin Connell after the break. You're listening to the Pay Chen Show here on In Depth Radio News Talk 1010. I'm with you until 10 p.m. tonight, covering for Vinnie White, who will be back next weekend. And if you want to catch podcasts of the show, you can always do that online, paychen.com. You can also find the show in iTunes as well. And the podcast is usually up eh, sometime the next day. And uh, coming up in the second hour of the show, I'll tell you a bit more about the uh, Toronto Garlic Festival and all the things you probably didn't know about that humble little bulb. You're listening to The Pay Chen Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Hey, thanks for tuning in tonight. I'm speaking with chefs Devin Connell from Delica Kitchen and Rob Rossi of Bastellan in Top Chef Canada Season 1. Now, we've been chatting about uh, the new show on Food Network that you're both a part of. It's called Chef in Your Ear. It debuts tomorrow night at 10 p.m., kind of a different type of competition show. So just to recap for people who are just tuning in, it pits two professional chefs like yourselves against each other. You are each assigned um, a, a amateur cook who doesn't know what they're doing you get to watch them through TV monitors and you have to tell them how to cook uh, a quality meal. I don't know what kind of level you were aiming for. I, I think generally it's it's supposed to be a restaurant quality. Okay. So you're trying to get a restaurant quality meal out of these people who admit that they are terrible cooks and you can only communicate with them through an earpiece, which they're wearing. And you have to coach them. And uh, earlier on, uh, uh, Devin, um, Rob mentioned that this process made him a better communicator because there's you can't take something from them to show them. You have to, mm -hmm. you know, and they might churn the vegetable the, the wrong way when you meant it to be churned the other way. That sort of thing. Right. Right. So yes. <laughs> what did you find that as well for yourself? I did. Um, you have to be very creative in the way that you explain things. Like I, I kind of likened it a few times to trying to explain things to like my two-year-old son. It's like you kind of have to sometimes really think visually and think um, in a very, very clear way. You have to assume that this person knows absolutely nothing and start from there because often 
um, you're talking to people in a professional kitchen that have a knowledge base, right? And, and you have to ignore all of that and kind of get back to true basics. Right. So uh, people can text in if they have a, any sort of food or cooking questions as well. You can text in at 7 10 10. Um, what do you say to people who say, oh, no, I can't cook? I would say that practice makes perfect and that it's not a natural thing to be able to walk into a kitchen with no experience and be able to make something amazing. It's, it's very hard to do that. So I think it's important for people to get into their kitchen, start with something simple, start with the classics, and just practice them and do it over and over and over again and build like a small repertoire of great recipes that are you know family favorites and just stick with those like you don't have to be crazy adventurous just stick with great recipes and practice them now what's what would you say is a good sort of dish or ingredient to work with for someone who says you know I'm not very good and I don't really know what I'm doing right I mean I think meat is always a tricky one because the cooking time is very specific Um, so people get intimidated about overcooking a steak or undercooking a steak or the same thing with chicken. So I I would recommend starting with like a protein like that and just getting your timing right and getting your confidence up with the way a a good steak feels when it's cooked properly. Mm -hmm. Um, and don't poke at it when you put your meat on a barbecue, don't cut it open, (laughs) don't put pokers in it, like kind of. Just get to know how long a meat takes by using maybe a thermometer and just by doing it by feel and get your confidence up that way. Uh, Rob and I were just talking during the break about flavor and how people, Rob, you're saying you feel like people are too um, close-minded when it comes to cooking with flavor. So what examples do you have of that? Oh, man. I mean, I just think people are just way too used to cooking with just salt and pepper. Okay, so what should we be using? Like, what would you suggest? You know, I think that, you know, definitely use a lot of herbs. Use a lot of herbs. Use a lot of garlic, shallots, mustard, uh, spices. Just try different things because, um, you know, at the end of the day, when you're eating and when you're cooking, it should be fun. It should be something that's exciting. And, you know, throw some spice in there. You know, that old sweet, salty, sour, you know, use those elements because it's going to make your food pop. It's going to it's going to make you excited to cook and it's going to broaden the way that you think about flavor. I think for a lot of people who aren't too comfortable in the kitchen, uh, the reason they cook the same things all the time and that, that the food is bland is because they're terrified of adding something new. Oh, for sure. And I think that, you know, stick to stick to like, you know, there's even the Mediterranean flavors that, you know, we all love. Uh, they can be very intense, you know, use them. You know, we have rosemary, we have garlic. Uh, lots of parsley, anchovies, um, chili. I mean, there's so many different things and, and just use them in, in varying, you know, volumes and just sort of get a feel for it, you know? Uh, we're coming up to fall, like into that fall produce season. Uh, I'd love to know your favorites, Devin, sort of things that you think people should be cooking with a bit more or that they should be looking out for in the next few weeks. Um, well, I'm a huge fan of apple pie and oh, apples, yeah. and I think there's no better time for amazing apples than fall. Um, so I think that's something that, that people should uh, be buying lots of. I know they'll be plentiful at the farmer's market this time of year and coming up. 
So that's my favorite ingredient that I'm looking forward to cooking with. Rob, your favorite for fall produce? Uh, you know, I love the beans. I love Romano yeah. beans and I love braising stuff. So yeah, definitely, definitely stuff like that. And I, and I love the stone fruits as well. Those are great. You know, oh, you peaches can... are so great right now. Yeah. And, and they're nice. You know, I, I love the whole sweet and savory combo. So, mm -hmm. you know, grilled peaches are awesome, you know, braised out, uh, you know, made into a chutney jams, using them in all kinds of ways, you know, anything you can really. Now, I'd love to know as well the sort of the kitchen tool or utensil that you think everyone should have in the kitchen. I always say microplane. Oh, good one. I pretty much always say that no matter who asks me because it's just it's just easier. I mean, really. And like, it's like about $15, you know? Yeah, and you like, can grate a lot. Of, like, I, I use it for nutmeg. You can use it yeah, for cheese. Nutmeg, and... cheese, garlic. Um, I mean, anything anything that you want done to a mince it's pretty amazing and it really like doing cheese on it especially there's there's almost no substitute yeah um what about you Devin? any kitchen tool or or gadget that you think should be in everyone's kitchen i'm pretty sure most people have this already but i would just i would say tongs just oh yeah up, like kitchen tongs um just from everything from grilling meats making pasta like tossing salads they're just kind of multi-purpose and cheap and easy and use them for everything it makes it a lot easier to toss the, well i've had tongs for a long time but i used to always i used to use them almost exclusively for barbecuing i never really thought to use them on the stove um, yeah. but it makes so much sense sometimes yeah. a spoon throws food everywhere it's true it's true like for plating spaghetti like it's they're they're great uh Oh, now here's another thing that I have found with people who don't cook very much or who maybe have sort of limited cooking skills is what they do is they go out and they buy the top of the line everything. The most, ex you know, they, they think that what will make them a better cook is the expensive knife, is the, you know, um, $200 Le Creuset pot, which is beautiful. And they go and they buy the, the best of the best and think that that will make them a better cook. Maybe sometimes it maybe gives them some confidence. I'm not really sure. But um, in your opinion, what do we really need? Like, how do we need a $200 knife? Um, I'm not going to say no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, I think to having a really good sharp chef knife is kind of a key tool to have. If you don't have a good knife, I would say that might be your one area to, mm -hmm. to splurge on. But I agree with you. The other stuff, it's it's no big deal. Like there's some amazing restaurants in the city of Toronto that I can think of where they're cooking off of electric stoves. And like, you know, they don't have big fancy gas ranges and they're churning out some of the best food in the city. So it really is about um, understanding heat, understanding, you know, how to how to use the equipment that you have to its best ability um but i will stick with having one good chef knife and then you know you can cut corners elsewhere but yeah you got to stick with that good knife <laughs> uh, i remember the first time i bought myself um a good knife was right after university and my a close friend of the family gave me a 200 dollars gift card 
And I'd only ever had a knife from like a big box store and it came in a knife block set and the whole set was $40. (laughs) So the blade wobbled and uh, and I still have that knife. It is my go-to knife. The key though, I think, is once you invest in a good knife, um, you have to get it sharpened. You have to, that's one thing that I haven't been great at, but you know, going and getting it sharpened, it's like having another, it's like having a brand new knife all over again. It should last you a lifetime. Yeah. Should last you it's not lifetime. something you need to keep replacing. No, uh, I've had a knife. Well, I've had multiple knives for over 10 years and they're still probably going to last another 10, yeah. if not 15. And that's a long time. That's a long time in the kitchen to be using it. Um, so the show Chef in Your Ear debuts tomorrow night at 10 p.m. I bet you're both. Have you seen the first episode yet? No. So you don't know how it's all been cut together and, uh, and condensed for one hour. No. I want to see it just like everyone else. Well, I'm sure it's going to be good. I'm sure of it. So it's 10 p.m. tomorrow night. Um, Thanks to you both for joining me and uh, look forward to seeing the show. So my guests have been Chefs Rob Rossi and Devin Connell. And Chef in Your Ear will be on Monday nights at 10. After the break, registered nutritionist Leanne Phillipson-Webb is giving away copies of her easy meal plans. And we have your chance to win, plus tips on having a healthy lunch no matter what your age, whether it's for yourself or for the kids and thinking outside of the sandwich. And she'll tell you how to choose between all of those alternative milk products out there. So soy, almond, rice, we'll find out if those are good for us. You're listening to The Pay Chan Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. More with Pay Chan. In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the show. I'm with you until 10 p.m. tonight, covering for Vinny. Um, joining me now, nutritionist Leanne Phillipson-Webb. She's back. And I know that you've been busy. You're busy with, like, clients, back to school. You've got your own kids as well. So yeah. uh, even if we don't have kids, though, it can still be quite a challenge to make interesting and healthy-ish lunches every and, day and interesting lunches something that you actually want to eat yes i used to um i used to complain about my sal- my kale salads every day at lunch and a coworker <laughs> said you made your lunch for yourself like you don't have to hate your lunch <laughs> you so can really much. jazz it up if you and want I to didn't, it was just that like it was my go-to i always had chopped like salad stuff in yeah. the fridge and it, it sometimes i'd eat the same salad for five days straight because sure. i just didn't have anything new and uh, and it kind of stuck stuck with me when she said you made your own lunch. Yeah. So you if can you, hate you can it... take this to whatever level that you want it to be. It can really be a tremendous meal, or it can be you know a peanut butter and jam sandwich. And obviously not if you're taking it to school, but it can be that you know that boring. But when you want to make a healthy lunch, the most important thing is to have all the components that will actually keep you going. So the point of having lunch is so you get energy so that you keep going through the afternoon. And when we're looking at kids going back to school, making sure that they have enough energy to keep them going while they're learning. They're not crashing in the afternoon like a lot of adults do. And you want to just crawl under your desk and Mm -hmm. have, you know, have a nap at about three o'clock. So you have to make sure that you've got proteins in there, carbs and fat. I always, if you visually draw a circle, draw a plate, Mm -hmm. and then cut it in half, a quarter, and then quarter it again. So half needs to be fruits and vegetables, and a quarter needs to be protein, and the other quarter needs to be 
uh, carbs. Okay. So it's just a nice visual for anybody to kind of see if you, whatever meal it is that you're having. So the protein's actually really important. So that could be meat, fish, eggs, tofu, quinoa, any beans, lentils, cheese, cottage cheese, especially high in protein, cheddar, cheese strings, those mm-hmm. kind of things are also really good. Kids love that. Carbs, those are super easy. So bread, wraps, bagels, watch out for the bagels. So they are worth about four slices of bread, an oh, equivalent whoa. in the carbs. So People tend to go heavy on the carbs. They do. And then that makes you feel great for a very short period of time. And then you crash really quickly. Right. Because if you don't have the protein or the fat, which gives it you know, more sustainability, keeps you going for longer, then you're going to crash or your kids are going to crash. And then, you know, the... the the afternoon lessons are, are kind of useless. They're not um, retaining anything. My One of my good friends is a teacher, and she would sometimes, you know, talk about you know, the kids in school and what they had for lunch. And for some of the kids, because it was convenient some days for the parents or they're in a rush and they didn't make lunch, they might do things like pack the kid three three granola bars right. and a little mini pack of crackers yeah. because it was not good enough. It was like. A, a substantial amount of food right. in their mind, like the volume They're was thinking there. That the volume's going to be there. Yeah, you know. So then the kid would kind of feel full because they ate three granola bars. Yes, but even to that, you can throw in an apple. Yeah, you could put in some soft fruit. Whenever I send soft fruit with my kids, they always complain because you know it might end up a bit bruised or a bit mm-hmm. mushed or something like that. So quite often, I'll wrap it in a napkin. Um, come across some great fun ones. They're called Fun Kids for Kids. Um, wrap wrap it in that and then they can actually use that as a placemat on the desk because it's kind of gross when there's been uh, however many other kids in the, in the lunchroom. So you could do something like that. Also, maybe for something like fruit, if you want to put it with maybe even just a bit of cheese and that granola bar, mm-hmm. you've already made a much better balanced uh, balanced meal. So, um, you know, my 11-year-old my still loves pears, just mm-hmm. pureed. So I chuck a few pears in the blender and just puree it up. And then either put it in a container or you can get these um, silicone squidgy bags, I yep. call them, like, you know, the baby yep. um, baby things. So um, I came across them actually on well.ca and that was really cool because we got a few colors of those. So then they actually fill it up with whatever it is they want. Maybe they put a bit of yogurt in today. They might put a few berries in there in with that as well. So that works out really well. Veggies have to go into that and it's not difficult to even just get those baby carrots to put in. Mm-hmm. A little bit of hummus on the side. Like really, you can take those three granola bars and crackers and do a lot with it. Bit of hummus in a small container on the side would be absolutely fantastic. You've got to get some hydration in there as well. So what about, um, I guess we were talking or alluding to meal planning for like the adults too. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. getting your meal, lunch. Meal planning, meal planning for anyone. And you had um, spoken about one of the meal plans that I have on SproutRide.com. It's called the Smart Kids Breakfast and Lunch Meal Plan. And the reason why I did that was because breakfast, you've got to start with, again, protein, fat, and carb mm-hmm. at breakfast. If you just give your kids cereal, if you just give them toast, they're going to crash by mid-morning. Their behavior goes all crazy. And then they become known as the, you know, the kid that's a pain in the butt by the teacher. And that's in the first week of school. Yeah. We don't want any of our kids <laughs> doing that. So whether you're doing this for your kids or whether it's for you, you know, especially with the kids, get them involved. Mm-hmm. Or if you're if you're doing it, you know, meal plan. I've got this meal plan that's already done, the which we're going to give away. So it's got some really fantastic ideas in there. Like, you know, when you think outside the sandwich, maybe in a thermos or in a thermal container, you can put some gnocchi. Right. Put that with some tuna and tomato sauce. Perfect balance because you've got the, the tuna, which is also healthy fats mm-hmm. for the brain. Really, really important there. You could do ravioli, tortellini, uh, mushroom risotto is one of the recipes that's in there. That's amazing as a leftover. Rice stir fry with leftover meat from the night before. Veggie packed pizza. 
pizza is not actually, you know, pizza, traditional pizza that you just go and get from any old pizza joint is not great, but I always add extra veggies on it, make it colorful, put all those peppers and things like that on them. Lasagna soup goes in there really, really great. And then also you can make wraps. Right. Not nearly as much bread, keeps everyone going. And again, mm-hmm. for any adult that's trying to, you know, weight management, you don't want to crash in the afternoon. So you can stick in some chicken, lettuce, cucumber, tomato, that's fairly standard, tuna salad, mayonnaise, but add in maybe some cucumber or jazz it up with a, a bit of dill pickle. That makes it a little bit more interesting. Grated cheese and grapes. Those taste really, really nice together. So you've got a little bit of fruit going on in there as so well. So then is this meal plan that we're giving away? So mm-hmm. which meal plan is it that we're giving so away to a listener? Sm- smart kids breakfast and lunch meal plan. But really, I mean, I've just called it that because <laughs> okay, because, because really any... It's a week-long a, meal plan? Week-long meal plan. Okay, and we're giving away... Loads. We can give away three. We'll give away three. three. Okay. So uh, for your chance to win, just call in 416-872-1010. Elliot's standing by the phone right now. Uh, and the key is th- this meal plan is going to be emailed to you. So yes. you need to have an email address and Leanne yep. will send it to you. Typically, um, you can, sorry, what did you say, Elliot? They could text as well, perhaps. They could also text in at 71010, but we need your email address and and your name, please. And we'll give away three of those meal plans, which uh, Leanne has on her website, which is SproutRight.com, something that people typically purchase yeah. from you. They and do, this way, we'll, this time you know, it'll help you get a kickstart and give you some great inspiration um, as you're heading back to your routine or heading back to school. So three winners there, and Elliot's got the phones going. Um, so the other thing, too, we're going to talk about was milk alternatives. And the reason Mm -hmm. uh, I was asking you about this is because there's this huge story recently about the company Almond Breeze and how people were really upset once they found out that it actually contained very little almond. Yes. Interesting. It was really actually, I'm I'm glad you brought this to my attention because I totally missed it. But there was was an article um, that was written up. And interesting, when my um, now 11-year-old, when she was younger, I used to make her almond milk. Instead, I was very um, intolerant to cow's milk so I thought okay I'm gonna do this Mm -hmm. and my recipe was one cup of almonds to four cups of water that was a really thick almond Mm -hmm. milk yeah cost a small fortune to make that especially with organic almonds so that was you know that was 20 percent almonds in there right what this article was saying um that you came across was that it was two percent but really when I broke down all the rest of the milks it's it's on average around about 90 percent water is in all milk cow's milk rice milk Almond milk, coconut milk, they all have a fairly similar amount. Okay. I would say that with this, with the Almond Breeze only having 2%, which Mm -hmm. is what the article, and there's a lawsuit against them This is a Time Magazine story, yeah? That's right, in Time Magazine, thank you. Um, And, and, you know, it's it's cost-effective to add even more water. But it does, so, I don't think it. I don't think it alters the taste. So my yeah okay. So I guess my issue is people are drinking it thinking they're getting some sort of nutrients. Sure. So out they're, of all these like milk alternatives, it's you know soy and hemp and rice and yeah. almond milk. Yeah, there's you a know, lot of them out there. What you know what might be a good option if you're not drinking cow's milk. So all of them really are fortified. Almond milk has vitamin A, D, B2, B12, calcium, and zinc, mm-hmm. and they're put it. What's put in there is to match what's in cow's milk so um in a in one cup 250 mils of almond milk then you've got about 330 milligrams of calcium which is a good amount 100 iu of vitamin d and about one microgram of b12 so you know, it's not coming naturally mm-hmm. and in a lot of milks even in, in skim milk they put vitamin d in because the vitamin d is in all the fat so as soon as you right. go from whole milk to skim milk then you're losing a lot of that fat 
So that makes a really big difference in rice milk. Um, 120 calories. It's much more, much more watery and much sweeter. Mm -hmm. Rice is kind of just naturally sweeter again. Um, But there's, you know, again, there's a bit more carbs, 15 grams of carbs in there. Um, Hemp milk would have higher, um, higher fat in it. So you kind of have to look at and then taste. If you're giving this to your children as an alternative to milk, or you're taking Mm -hmm. it away, then you have to see, you know, what taste you love. If you're buying soy milk, I know that's one of your go-tos. Please make sure that it's organic or it has a little, um, you know, little emblem on it that says no GMO. So stay okay. away from the genetically modified soy. That's okay. really important. Perfect. Thank you so much, Leanne. My that's uh, SproutRight.com is where you can find out more information about Leanne. And we will uh, we'll determine who the winners are for her meal plan, and she will be emailing those to you. And I'm sticking around for another hour after the break. Toronto Garlic Festival. Listening to the Pay Chen Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Oh, it's so mellow now. Um, thanks to everyone who called and texted in to win a meal plan from Leanne. You can find out more info on her website, SproutRight.com. She does have all kinds of um, different meal plans and products and lots of healthy nutrition info there. And uh, Elliot took down the names of a couple of people. Also, some of you who text in, thank you so much. Phil, uh, Nada. Nada, I really like your email address. I won't say what it is, but I was a big fan of that show. Uh, Nicholas as well. So thank you for texting in, and I'm so glad that you were all interested in getting a meal plan from her. Um, I was, I guess, promoting throughout the first hour. By the way, I'm Paige Chen, and I'm in for Vinnie White until 10 p.m. He is, uh, I think he's actually at his brother's wedding in the UK. So he'll be back next weekend and he'll tell you all about it. Um, the Toronto Garlic Festival is back. They have a new location. Um, what's that? You didn't know there was a Toronto Garlic Festival? Surprise. There is one. And uh, it's in its fifth year and it's going to be taking place at Witchwood Barns, which is a really great little space. They have a nice farmer's market there as well on Saturdays. And it's up near St. Clair West Subway Station. You can actually uh, walk from there. It's walking distance. And it's a really great little space. And uh, Peter McCluskey is the festival director. He's also the author of Ontario Garlic, the story from farm to festival. And uh, I think we're getting Peter on the line, Elliot. Is that, yeah? But not yet. Okay, so we're about to get him on the line. And he also just wrote a book. I met him last summer and uh, at a dinner, actually, and it was a garlic dinner. So it was for the Toronto star, uh, Corey Mintz, who's a food writer there. He has a, um, a column, or he had a column called Fed, where he would have dinner parties and he would invite sort of one key interesting person. And then the rest of us kind of filled in. Um, and Peter was there because he, you know, the garlic festival was coming up. And also he just had... So much interesting like background and knowledge about garlic and uh, the history of garlic in Ontario. Not something that I would have really thought about or, I guess, put much, put much effort into, I guess. But um, he, uh, so his book is out now. So it's uh, Ontario Garlic, the story from farm to festival. And it takes a look at the, the history and sort of the path that garlic has taken um, from different countries, and it's a lot of these sort of European countries, Asian countries, where garlic came, and uh, for a long time, it was considered something that, I guess, like second-class citizens um, 
would eat. And there was sort of like a, a bit of a food prejudice against garlic. Like kids would be sent home if they from school if they smelled of garlic. Um, there was also a, a rumor. I'm not sure if this is fact or rumor in the book, but um, that on the TTC at one point, you could not take the TTC on a Sunday if you had eaten garlic. So it was really considered something that, you know, the the poor people ate or something, you know, of that sort. Not something that was uh, very good. Do you have Peter on the line? Excellent. Hi, yeah. Peter. Hi there. So, Peter, when we met last year, you were working on the book. Congratulations. It's uh, It's out now, and I know that it's also part cookbook. You got some great recipes from various chefs. Yes. And what I thought was really interesting and what I learned from you when we met uh, last year was um, sort of the influence of immigrants and of other cultures who brought garlic to Ontario. Yes. So, so yeah. there were, um, they're really what made the difference. And it took, it took a couple of hundred years. The, the British influence from the 18th, 19th century kind of dampened um, the spread of garlic. It was used medically. And in things like tonic, like Worcestershire sauce, was used as a, as a medical tonic in the 19th century, and it had garlic in it. And people liked it as a tonic, and British would use it as a tonic. And they, they liked really also the garlic, but they couldn't take it as a food. They could mm -hmm. take it medically. So it wasn't until about 1970 when the immigration laws changed, and a lot of people came here from all over the world with their cuisine and with that garlic. So did it, uh, were you able to trace garlic back to any, you know, one specific country? No, it's, you know, there are Korea and the Ukraine are, are known as big consumers of garlic, but it was really Asia, Chinese, Ukrainians, Italians, really anyone who wasn't British <laughs> brought garlic here and they're what, they're what made the change. The irony, though, is that is that before the 1970s, when there was a, such a big change in the demographics, those people were kind of made fun of and mocked for their use of garlic. And garlic became kind of a symbol of these non-British immigrants. Well, I, it was interesting as I was um, flipping through your book that it was sort of like this... Garlic was... You talk about food stereotypes and, and so I guess, food prejudices. And garlic was one of those foods that... Um, sort of symbolized you being a, of a lower class in some way or, you know, yeah. the immigrant. And if, you, you know, you didn't want to smell of garlic. Correct. And and so I have stories of that sort of thing of didn't want to be associated with it. Um, people who were, uh, one woman I interviewed in the 1940s as a young girl wanted to go to Sunday school. She lived in a really small town in Ontario. And, the, and their Sunday school teacher said, well, you can you can come to Sunday school if you don't eat garlic, in other words, you smell of garlic, kid, and and leave the garlic alone if you want to sing in in Sunday school. But I, how much garlic were were people eating? Because I feel like now that it, it's such a staple that everyone eats garlic, and I don't really smell it on anyone. Like you would have to eat a lot of uh, of like hummus or something to really smell yeah. of it. So I'm just wondering, like, did everyone back then have very sensitive noses? I think if it, maybe a few things. I think one is we. We weren't as hygiene-minded. We maybe weren't brushing our teeth every day. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't oral, think about that. <laughs> yeah, if you look at ads, oral hygiene didn't become a big deal until roughly the 30s and 40s. 
Okay, that would that would make a big difference because garlic can that taste can last for a while. It can last. So brushing your teeth helps. Um, and and I mean I mean I eat a lot of garlic and I have at least as many friends as I did <laughs> before I fell in love with garlic. But I think that could have been a factor is oral hygiene. Right, that would make perfect sense. Um, yeah. I, you know, in the book when you talk about the the prejudices against people who consumed garlic and, and people of those particular ethnicities and cultures. Um, you also mentioned, which I thought was interesting, that uh, tomatoes, which I had no idea, had also been sort of a target of food prejudice. Tomatoes and lobster. I'd heard the story about lobster being like the poor man's food yeah. at some point, um, but I never knew if it was really true or not because I'm from the East Coast. And if if lobster could be cheap, well, that'd be fantastic, you know, for the consumer. Yeah. So it is something I, in my research, because what I was trying to do is give like the bigger picture of, is it was it just garlic that had this kind of negative stereotype? No, many things. And yes, tomatoes and lobster are two things that were perceived to be either evil or poisonous, or even the case of tomatoes and with lobster um, had this association of, and, and in fact, it was fed to, used in, in, in um, the kitchens and prisons or used as animal, to feed animals. In the in the 19th century, and so it wasn't until the ra- railroads moved further inland, away from the coast, and and the uh, train managers served lobster on the train to these customers who who had no idea what lobster was. They'd never seen it or had any negative association. They liked the, They loved the taste of it, and then that's what started to make lobster a luxury food. It was kind of rediscovered. So what I'm trying to what I was trying to illustrate with that story and the tomatoes is that you know lobster or rather garlic has a flavor that we may have preconceived notions of what garlic tastes like. And so if you tell someone there's some there's garlic in something and they already hate garlic, they're going to hate the taste. Right. It's really, it's very interesting. So it's something about human psychology as well. It's true because if you tell someone, um, let's say, that they're eating, um, I don't know, like sweetbreads, and then you tell them what sweetbreads are, they might love it before they eat it. And then once they know what it is, it's it's not delicious anymore. Exactly. So in, there's another like in another story I have of an experiment done with um, beer and vinegar. Beer ac- or vinegar actually tastes good in small quantities in beer, but if you tell that to someone, they just think, "Oh, that's gross." Right. If, I if never knew taste- that actually about vinegar yeah. and beer. <laughs> and, and so if they taste it without knowing, they like the taste of it. So it's just it just speaks. These stories speak to these ideas we have of garlic and how these these stereotypes we had around garlic stood in the way of appreciating it. Now, uh, how many varieties of garlic grow in Ontario, or roughly how many? How many which? Uh, varieties Variety. of garlic, yeah. Well, there are five to seven, depending on on who you talk to, which mm-hmm. botanist, there's five to seven varieties of hardneck garlic, and within each there are dozens, if not hundreds, of strains of garlic. Oh, okay. So there are, and I myself have grown as many as 45 strains of garlic, I didn't even know that was possible. <laughs> like I, I honestly, I was thinking maybe you would tell me there was like four kinds of garlic. No, many, many. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's possible to grow 45 strains for one man <laughs> because it almost killed me. Um, but um, there are potentially hundreds of strains of garlic. Wow. Now, the difference between one strain and then one next to it may be very minute. Okay. Um, but the difference between those those five or seven varieties can be quite great. And and what what makes the difference too it's it can be soil um the weather that year the same thing that affect um grapes mm-hmm. why why a wine right. will be different from year to year 
is there a type of is there a type of garlic that sort of consider the like the champagne or the caviar of garlic the one that um, is like I don't know the tr- the, the truffle of garlic that is considered <laughs> uh, rare or is usually more expensive is does that sort of exist in the garlic world? I know I'm prejudiced in this, but I would say that Ontario garlic as a whole <laughs> is is a champagne um, among garlic because. Because the climate we have here in the soil lends itself really to the hardneck garlic, which grow well in in the northern hemisphere and need winter to mm-hmm. to, um, to over they need to overwinter to do really well. And and the simple test for anyone is just buy an imported garlic, buy a Chinese garlic, for example, and, and sample it beside an Ontario hardneck garlic, right. and you'll see for yourself. Because garlic is, for most people, I would imagine that they can pick up garlic at the grocery store and it's often sold, it can be sold loose, or you can find it like three in a in a little bag. Yes. And it's very cheap. It's like a dollar or two dollars. Um, it's really cheap. It's like a buck. And you know what? Um, I've in, in researching this, it's actually, the price we pay for it is less than the cost for it to be produced and shipped here. So... How does that make sense? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, that could be a long, uh, that's another book maybe. <laughs> maybe it has to do with um, um, farmers in other countries being subsidized right. by the government. Um, but so it's really an unfair competition in terms of price. But in terms of flavor, Ontario garlic wins hands down. And and so one thing that people say, well, is Ontario garlic so expensive? Well, it's it's simply that uh, some of this imported garlic is just so cheap. It's it's actually, like I said, produced for less than the the, the um, cost, more than the cost that we're paying for it. Right. Yeah. So we're buying it at a discount almost. It's like it it costs more yeah. than a dollar to make, but we're paying for a, a we're paying a dollar for it. We're paying a buck. So it just there's no comparison. And and then to use to not use Ontario garlic you're actually doing yourself an injustice because you if you're cooking at home and you find all these other ingredients and spending the time you know spend the extra 20 cents and, mm-hmm. and you use some really good garlic well that's about what it costs for the amount of garlic you would use well I guess that's the other thing is you know you might look at uh, I think I was at a farmer's market and I saw someone selling a garlic a head of garlic for like 250 a piece or a yeah. head and yeah. um, I don't have problem like I enjoy buying local if I can, so I don't mind paying two fifty for that because I've sort of become used to it. But yeah, um, you know, when I'm shopping with someone who looks at it and goes, "Oh my gosh, why would I pay two fifty for a head of garlic when I can buy three of them at the grocery store for a dollar?" It does require you to think a little bit differently. But the other thing, I guess, what I said to my friend was, um, when you cook. You don't often need that whole head of garlic. You don't need to buy five exactly. heads of garlic. You may yeah. just use a clove or two, yeah. and then you're buying something of a, a you know better quality. Precisely, and and so the, the that's a good point to make with your friend, and and also we we have this idea that food is cheap, and it's because it it's been it's been these big agribusinesses have been subsidized uh, to some degree, but. We, we, we spend a lot of money on a lot of other things like our internet and our cars and other things. And, and we have to forget the idea that food, food has actually been highly subsidized. So the price we're paying for a bulb of garlic, we should just accept it. We're also supporting a local farmer when we're buying that bulb of garlic. Now, I know that you knew a lot about garlic before you wrote the book, but what surprised you um, when you were doing the research for it? My gosh. Um, 
she wears <laughs> <laughs> a lot well, of things, I guess. <laughs> a lot of things, and and enough to write a book. Um, I think one of them, in the really astounded me in the interviews I did because I interviewed um, about 150 people, is the number of people who were surprised about that garlic had ne- negative associations. Oh, oh yeah, and, I didn't know that until you you told me when we met last year. Yes, and so I found that really astounding that. And especially the the younger the person I spoke with, they were surprised because they just think, well, garlic is this popular thing, and how could anyone not like it? But it's these stories I I got from speaking with um, people who immigrated here, and how it was kind of like a it was kind of like a fifth column that it was growing in backyards. Immigrants were growing it, but um, I, I guess pretty people with a British background or Anglo's were not, and and so it was kind of just this hidden thing. That's the thing that really astounded me. Um, and, and one of the persons I interviewed uh, who uh, is associated with the Sudbury Garlic Festival, as she said, and she's Ukrainian, she said, you know, how many more years could the British or anyone with that with uh, English background continue to eat boiled meat and boiled potatoes? <laughs> they would have to discover this garlic sooner or later. Well, so that, this, that was this kind of hidden thing for so long. Mm-hmm. Well, I wouldn't have... Uh, I, it, to me, it was just... It's like saying carrots have always been around and we ate carrots. I just thought, well, garlic's always been around. And I, I didn't think of it as something that sort of was introduced to the yeah. province in the last century. Yeah, the la- or the, especially the last like 30. It was really since like 1970 when the, the immigration wow. laws changed. That's and very recent. More, pretty recent. So there were more people coming here. And I have fa- interesting stories in the book of people who, who uh, like, I got just like a sliver of what must have been thousands of interactions of people through marriage, through accidents of fate, introduced or found found garlic. It's really interesting. So people, for example, who were would marry one of the one of the of the couple, one of them would be a garlic lover, the other would be a garlic hater, but their children invariably were garlic lovers. So. Like it was like garlic was like a dominant gene. Liking garlic <laughs> was a dominant gene. It's like it, having dark hair and brown eyes. <laughs> yeah, really. And so it's just through through you know um, this. And in in Canada, we've got such a, a rich and diverse culture and people from everywhere in the world. This is going on everywhere in the world, but especially here because of you know, like in Toronto, we've got one of the most diverse populations in the world, and everyone is bringing their fantastic cuisine, which includes garlic. Now, I know that uh, you have only somewhat stumbled into garlic later in life because you <laughs> you had like a, you know, a corporate job. You were living in New York and then suddenly you you had no you didn't have a farming background. You didn't have an agriculture background. It just. Well, if you can call growing plants on my windowsill in my office yeah. in New York. <laughs> yeah. Well, if that makes you a gardener than I am as well. <laughs> um, and I can't keep a single thing alive. Um, now, garlic, I hear, is one of the easier things to grow. Is that true? It is. It's um, many things are pretty easy to grow, actually. Um, and garlic, garlic does pretty well in different soils. So it's a good, it's a good um, plant to try out if you've not grown anything ever. And I explain it in really simple ways in the book as well. How do, you, how to, how to grow garlic? And it's not too late. It, it. Oh, it's not. It gets planted in September, October. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then it sits over. It needs to overwinter, mm-hmm. and then it, and then you harvest it. In, in uh, July the following year. So someone so, could, if they had just a little bit of property, like, you know, they, they don't need a, a 
giant piece of land, they could be planting garlic in the next few weeks? Well, you'd plant it in um, end of September or October. Oh, okay. And you can plant it in your backyard mm-hmm. or, or even on a balcony. You can plant it in a, I would say, a very large pot because you, you need to have that insulation from sudden temperature changes in the winter. Okay. But, but I, t- I describe this in the book, and it's yeah. totally possible to plant uh, in the city. So the book is Ontario Garlic, the story from farm to festival. It's just come out. So you've got a great little section in there about the history of uh, garlic in Ontario, which is really interesting. You've got recipes in there, and then you've also got a bit of like instructional how to, how to plant and grow uh, garlic as well. Um, now, how long can we keep garlic around like, what's the best way to store it? Good question. Garlic ideally can store, and depends on the variety, but can store for uh, eight months or a year. Um, and the best way to store it is keep it at a steady temperature. Don't don't store it in, in your kitchen near a hot place like your stove okay. or in a, in a window. A pantry or a cellar is, uh, is a very good place to store your garlic. And uh, keep it well aerated. And... The ones that look like they're going, you're mm-hmm. not doing so well, eat, take them out and eat them. Keep an eye on it. Mm-hmm. Now, what but, about sometimes the, my garlic, um, the cloves, they start to sprout a little green plant? Yeah. That often happens when people put their garlic in the fridge. Never store your garlic in the fridge because oh. that cold is telling the garlic to sprout. Mm-hmm. It thinks, oh, it's wintertime, and now it's and now it's, it's the cold is... is um, like a signal to it to sprout. So so you can still eat it. Um, some people recommend to cut that bit of green out. Um, there are also studies that suggest that that green is, even, is, very, is very good for you. Um, but it's still totally edible, even with a sprout coming out. Okay. So then the Toronto Garlic Festival is happening Sunday, September 20th, uh, 9 yes. to 5 at Witchwood Barnes, which is a new location for you. There's a yes. $5 admission, which is uh, very reasonable, very low. What's happening there? You've got a bunch of vendors. Oh, we've got amazing things. Um, uh, one of the breweries is working on a black garlic um, beer. Oh. Yes. And, um, <laughs> and it's a type of beer that's very like a porter it's very chocolatey and dark and it'll should lend itself really well and i have a chef who's working on a ribs with um uh black garlic beer sauce so he'll be using Ooh, that that black good. garlic in the sauce um we have a lot of um vegetarian um food and really interesting desserts like um uh Ledochi is working on a black garlic marshmallow that'll that's homemade and toasted on the spot it um, is one of those things like you said that maybe you shouldn't tell me first that there's garlic in it and then i'll enjoy this marshmallow <laughs> i really enjoy i really enjoy uh watching people try these things at the festival and <laughs> and being really wowed by them because nothing, nothing we do is gimmicky it's not we don't do these combinations like chocolate like, dip example or... <laughs> we're doing we're doing a um, butterscotch ice cream with black garlic in oh it. and and i've tested it already it's okay really amazing and so this is a way of showing off the versatility of garlic by doing these interesting dishes. But we also have lots of um, good, just good old comfort food. Like mm-hmm. We'll have corn on the cob with garlic uh, butter. We'll have, we'll have garlic um, toast, the same recipe that they use at Carmen's Restaurant, which mm-hmm. um, many people know is a, a famous restaurant in Toronto, ran for 50 years and had amazing, famous for their garlic toast, their garlic bread. 
Very nice. So lots of great food vendors. Of course, a great place to pick up some uh, local garlic as well. Um, music, music. and Garlic um, music or just music? Well, not garlic music. <laughs> just some really good music, live music, <laughs> and three film screenings and talks on garlic. Um, so a lot of a lot of great things going on. Fantastic. So torontogarlicfestival.ca is the website. Peter, thank you so much for your time and congrats on the book. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. You too. That's Peter McCluskey, director of the Toronto Garlic Festival. Also, his book is out, as I mentioned, Ontario Garlic, the story from farm to festival. Uh, coming up in the next half hour, Ed Keenan's going to pop in. We'll hear about what's coming up on his show. Also, I will tell you how you can win a pasta maker that I'm giving away, and I love it. I'm obsessed with it. So that's coming up right after the break. You're listening to The Pay Chen Show here on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. until 10 p.m. tonight. Coming up in a couple of minutes, Ed Keenan is going to join me. We'll talk about what's coming up on his show and uh, talk a little bit about things that have happened this past week. Um, I'm so into this garlic festival thing because when I was growing up, my dad used to eat raw garlic, like not cloves of it, but he'd have it like thinly, thinly sliced and sometimes he would eat it with like with other stuff. So I would have been that kid who had it been like I don't know, 20 years earlier, I would have been that kid who was sent home for smelling like a garlic. I smell like garlic now. Um, as I was mentioning just before the break, I ha- and I haven't had a chance to say this throughout the show tonight, um, on my website, paychen.com, if you go to blogs, you will see that I have a contest. I'm giving away a brand new Philips pasta maker. It's worth $300. And I just posted uh, the contest details up there. You enter online. And um, it is, and they are not paying me to say this um, whatsoever. I had a machine last weekend. I made three batches of pasta in one day. It was on a Sunday. And uh, I couldn't, it was, it was just so easy that I love the machine because I had a different pasta maker before that, which... I don't know. I just couldn't make the dough very well. And the motor on my machine was was burning. And then one time I made the dough too wet and everything stuck together when it came out into clumps. So I was very frustrated by it. But anyway, this new machine, this Philips pasta maker is uh, you throw everything into it. It mixes it and then it pushes out the shape. So I really enjoyed it. It does take up a bit of counter space. Um, so just keep that in mind. But you can find out info, like I said, on my website, paychen.com. Click on blogs. And I gave Elliot some pasta last week. I don't know if he remembered to take it out of his bag when he got home. Did you eat it, Elliot? The pasta's very good, Pay. It was my first batch. No, you have now uh, seen the magic that is fresh pasta. Well, I've always loved fresh pasta, and I always had aspired to be a fresh pasta maker with this other little pasta-making attachment that I had. Um, but this this little machine that I was playing with makes it easy. So I'm happy to give it away. You can find out more info on my website. Um, just for those of you who love felines, and I'm sure that is 99% of you, would you like to visit a cat cafe if it was in Toronto? Elliot is nodding yes. Are yes, you cat, I would. You're a cat person? Uh, yes, I had a cat for many years. He sadly oh. died. Uh, he was 16, though. He had a long life. But yes, I love cats. So you would like to sit in a cafe and eat, like, biscotti, have a cappuccino, and be playing with cats? Absolutely. Okay. Well, I was right. It's 99% of people. Um, in a few weeks, we'll finally... 
have uh, Toronto's first cat cafe. Now, this was a trend in Asia and then it, and in Europe as well. And so in Canada, there's been a bit of a scramble to kind of open up the first one in various cities. And it's called, um, well, it's T-O-T. So I, I'm guessing it's called Tot, the cat cafe. And uh, they'll be at College in Spadina. So it's supposed to be opening in a couple of weeks. So sometime in September. So cat enthusiasts will be able to stop by for a warm drink and a snack. And then you can enter a, a glass enclosed space to play with a bunch of little furry friends. But the thing is, um, the company spokesperson says, if you don't want to interact with the cats, it's still a cafe. Like you can still go even if you don't want to. <laughs> Although I figure you would only go if you wanted to interact with cats. You're not going to hate cats and go to the cat cafe, right? Um, also on their Facebook page uh, for Tot the Cat Cafe, they posted, good news, cat lovers. You now have the opportunity to work at the job of your dreams. Tot is looking for a barista and a cashier. Two jobs. You can apply with your cover letter and resume. So you can just search them on Facebook if this interests you um, and you want to work at the cat cafe, which you might. I'm intrigued by the uh, the health regulation side of all this. I love cats, and I'm intrigued yeah. by this cafe. I want to pet them, but I don't necessarily want them sleeping in flour or other things that could be eaten. I, no, I agree with you. There is definitely some sort of hygiene issue there, but I'm guessing that the reason why it's probably taken a little while to work out the kinks is they must have some way to keep them separated. So they must have, like, if they're in a glass enclosure right. or there's, like, a... Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, they must. I mean, the city obviously they must have worked something out. They must have worked something out, but I mean, probably I, I have less of an issue with cats walking around a kitchen than I do with the rats that walk around right. half of the kitchen. C cats are very clean. In, Maybe in compared some to respects, rats. Yeah. yeah. In some, yeah, some, some ways, you know. Yeah. Like I said, ninety-nine percent. Um, okay, so we're going to take a quick break here uh, on uh, the Paychen Show on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. After the break, Ed Keenan will pop in, and I'll tell you about, guys, this is like the craziest idea that some people in Alberta came up with. They're making a ton of money, and they're selling something that is so ridiculous, you will think I'm lying to you when I tell you about it, but it's true. And this is just to reinforce and prove to you that there is no idea too dumb to make you a millionaire. All right, taking a quick break. Back after this. <laughs> This is the Pay Chen Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Thanks for tuning in tonight. I'm Pei Chen. Uh, Ed Keenan joins me now. Good hello. evening. Hello. Hello, hello. Um, do you want to mention what's coming up on your show? Oh, right, right away? Oh, no, we for, can save for, it. I thought, I thought the way this works is we do a little oh, banter to, yeah. about something no, else. And then right at now. the end, then I... Yeah, uh, we can do no. that too. Uh, well, order. actually, uh, it's kind of interesting. I hope it's going to be very interesting. But as people will know, uh, Toronto City Hall's transit planning situation has been kind of crazy over the last few years. And it's just going to continue to be crazy mm -hmm. in September uh, or uh, this fall. We have reports coming back on Smart Track and the Scarborough Subway, which, you know, the a lot of people say, including me, mm -hmm. that it's hard to avoid seeing how those two lines running right beside each other aren't going to cannibalize each other's ridership, right. making it an expensive boondoggle and, and, and all of that. But the whole saga, uh, I'm going to talk to somebody who had a, a sort of a front row seat 
to most of the Scarborough subway oh. LRT battles. J.P. Boutros was a uh, he was the senior transit advisor to Karen Stintz, who was mm-hmm. the chair of the TTC in the last uh, in the Rob Ford years, mm-hmm. um, and and so he was a player in in the fight to save Transit City, and then he was uh, a close watcher of the Scarborough Subway revival, on which he sort of split from his boss Karen Stintz, uh, and so I. I want to talk to him about, you know, how we got into this situation we're in now, mm-hmm. what's likely to happen next, and uh, and what, you know, as somebody who, who really was an insider there, uh, what makes sense and what doesn't. How long is it going to take? That to... interview? Uh, oh, no. Probably. <laughs> uh, no. How long is it going to take to build things? Well, yeah. it depends. Well. It depends. Everything um, takes twice as long as they John say, Tory says Smart Track should be done in about six or seven years. Uh, I I would be surprised, mm-hmm. um, uh, but something like Smart Track, if in fact we go ahead with it and get those stations built, it's possible to see that built inside ten years, uh, if the if the province goes ahead and electrifies the lines as it right. said it was already going to. Uh, if if we started the Scarborough Subway, uh, you know, I I, th- I think optimistically fifteen years from now wow. would be a good opening date. You know, it's it, it's. Interesting because, um, you know, I live down near King and Spadina and King Street is it's a mess. The streetcar is a mess. So to, you know, when they talk about building subways and relief lines and like all of these things to do with transit to help help it along, they're they're long term plans. And mm-hmm. I'm very I want the short term solution. <laughs> I want <laughs> I, someone know, to fix it. You tomorrow. know what the thing is, is that the short term solution is always the bus. Uh <laughs> And nobody gets excited about buses. There actually no. are a lot of places in the world where they run, uh, and you can relatively quickly mm-hmm. install like express bus routes. So you just like instead of an LRT, yeah, you you paint the lanes. These are just for buses. You put tons and tons of buses on there. You run it like subway frequency. So yeah. every one minute a bus wow. comes, uh, and you can even run them as expresses and all of that. But but nobody gets excited about that. Bus? Like nobody no. ever. If you've been on a bus in Toronto, there's good reason not to be excited about them. <laughs> they're so they're it's funny because from the outside it looks like they will fit a lot of people. On the inside, they're incredibly narrow. But you know they're what? They're crowded, yeah. I um I guess just speaking about like transportation, I um decided I I tried the Queen's Key bike lanes today. Mm-hmm. So I'd done it before, but for a very short distance. And also I think the first weekend it opened up, I was down there, and because it was the first weekend that they had taken all the gates and everything away it was so congested so i yeah. didn't go more than two blocks so now if nobody's been down there uh and and if you somehow miss the discussions about it queen's key is sort of divided now so there's like a couple lanes for cars and then there's a couple lanes for streetcars, and then they have these bike lanes that are parallel with the sidewalk yeah um and the bike lanes are separate from the sidewalk but they there's no Unlike they're not, there's no curb between them, no, so people so it's can wander out. Confusing uh, for people. Yeah, yeah. and and you know they, they call it a shared pathway. So it's a different. It's painted like I mean it's uh it's asphalt like the the road, but like you said, because it's on the same level as a sidewalk, it it, it feels like an extra wide sidewalk mm-hmm. to a lot of people, um, which is very dangerous because today I saw a lot of people who were, would get off a streetcar, they would cross the street, and they would just stop dead center yeah. in the middle of the bike lane just to kind of like look around or check their phone or something. Yeah, they're... Meanwhile, people are like, there's like 10 bikes zooming by and you hear ding, 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 ding. Um, but today was like 
not crazy busy. I also went down there while the Jays game was going on. So maybe there were fewer people down there. So it was moderately busy. And I was able to bike from Spadina to, I went to the Loblaws at Jarvis. Um, so I went from West End to Jarvis at East End at only a moderate pace because I got a lot of red lights and there was people traffic mm-hmm. um, in less than six minutes. Well, that's not bad. So I was, and all I thought was like, wow, if this was like off peak hours during the week, let's say, like maybe 10 a.m. on a Monday, I could zoom from end to end of the city in in 10 minutes, like, you know, going now, really far. Now, here's the thing is about that and how dangerous, I, I've heard from a lot of cyclists this, and it's kind of funny I, in the <laughs> in a weird, bizarre way, because the, uh, the complaints they have about sharing the space with yes. people on foot are identical to the complaints that that motorists have about sharing the road with cyclists elsewhere in the city. It's like it's so dangerous, and these people are just, <laughs> you know, riding yep. the bike along Sunday drive. <laughs> you're gonna, I'm going fast. Yeah. I'm gonna hit you. Get off the, get off the road. But, but beyond that, I, I think the thing is, is and and I'm not, I haven't made my mind up about this, and I have to go look at it because I've talked to a lot of, uh, the people who sort of. I don't want to misquote the people who actually were involved in designing it at Waterfront Toronto mm-hmm. we've talked to, but I've talked to a lot of people about the sort of philosophy of that area, and it's like a waterfront tourist area, right? Mm-hmm. And so this uh, bike lane that's also for sort of joggers that merges out into the sidewalk is meant to be kind of like a Sunday drive kind of place for cyclists and people. It's meant to be a sort of like we share this space and we kind of we all – taking it easy here. Yeah, right? we're leisurely. But it's, of course, downtown too, so people are trying to fly by on their bikes. They want it to be a bike highway. But it's right? not. Well, there's uh, there's also a lot of lights. And the one thing I will say is very rarely do you see cyclists stop at lights when they're supposed to, but at every light, Ed, and they happen like every block, yeah. everyone stopped. Because there's all these pedestrians <laughs> so in the way. so many people. <laughs> but I couldn't believe it because I will but admit. You're, but you still got along like, pretty quick, as it seemed. Uh, yeah, in like six minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like, you know, there were slow people in front of me, people on Bixie bikes who tend to ride a little bit leisurely because yeah. they're not, you know, they don't cycle all the time. Um, but what I will say to anyone who is cycling, even if you don't do it often, is stay to the right. If you're not, if you're going to like cycle at a snail's pace, don't weave in and out of the very, it's also a fairly narrow <laughs> bike lane. Yeah. And don't stay to the left. That's the passing side. So I'm like, ding, 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 ding. I'm just, I'm like, I gotta get to the grocery store. Um, but it was, I, I was thrilled to be able to get from, and it's not a far distance, but Spadina to Jarvis. If I went oh, on yeah, King that's Street, quick, yeah. it's a mess because I'm always stopped behind a car or a streetcar. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was actually quite, uh, quite speedy. I was pretty, I was pretty happy with that. You know which bike hey, lane is stuff. amazing? Sherburne. That, Sherburne, yeah. That Sherburne bike lane is the best and you don't have that issue with pedestrians it's not as no no well, the sherburn bike lane is a completely separated bike lane right yeah and, so and it's, it's great uh, and you just whiz all the way like i would just ride up and down that uh street all day so so you like it a lot the sherburn bike lane love it all right love i did it. hear some complaints from cyclists after it went in they were still bitter the ones i was talking to about yeah. jarvis being removed and they for whatever reason uh they thought Jarvis was a better bike street. But I used to live on Jarvis. I lived yeah. on Jarvis for six years, and I biked. And uh, although maybe that was before they put it a little lane in there, it mm-hmm. was it was messy. You were always Jarvis was dangerous for 
uh, for cyclists. Well, that's why they it. put those bike lanes in, I guess, because they, they took out that center lane of right. reversible traffic. That but was, now then, it's, <laughs> then Rob Ford they put it back. Put it back. Sometimes yeah. they make mistakes. Um, <laughs> I was, you know, last week I was uh, talking about this 24 year old kid in Texas who made, in a very short period of time, like I think in a month, $10,000 selling potatoes to people. So he started up. That's a this, lot of potatoes. It's a lot of potatoes. His. His business basically is $8 for a medium potato, $10 for a large potato. He can write up to 140 characters on a large potato. Well, okay, and hold, he mails hold on, wait, them to he's, people. He's writing on them. He writes on them. Okay, writes, this changes everything. He writes personalized messages. Congratulations, Ed, on your promotion. Happy birthday, Ed. Now, on the skin of the potato? On the skin of the potato. No, nope, he just writes with a with a marker. It's okay. not even fancy work. He writes it, and it people order them, and then he mails them to people. So it was like a, a joke. His now does that eight dollars or whatever include shipping, or is yeah, it shipping it does. on top of that? Okay, no, it includes yeah, shipping. Okay. No, you made it sound like it was a good deal. It's not. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's the not. potato itself is worth about four cents, right? Like if you look at the bag of the price of a bag of potatoes. Well, so this kid, he is making a ton of money. Uh, at ten dollar, eight or ten dollars a potato, and he'd already had ten thousand dollars in sales in the first few weeks. Wow. Okay, so the reason I, I sort of bring that up again is because <laughs> I was talking about you know when you're a kid or even as an adult, you think you have this idea and you're like, this is such a stupid idea, or you tell someone and then they say to you, that's a stupid idea, and you go, okay, fine, I'm not going to pursue it. Well. This guy, even though he was told it was a dumb idea, he went mm -hmm. through with it, and now he's rich. But here's the other thing. To go along with this theme is uh, there's an Alberta startup that's taking advantage of one of the province's most prized natural resources, not oil, but their fresh air. The company is um, called Vitality Air, and they are bottling and selling air from the Rocky Mountains. And you ask yourself, what moron, what idiot would go in, online and buy air from the Rocky Mountains? Um, you? A lot of people. Did you, did you no, buy some? I did not, because oh, okay. I refuse. Um, so they say they But this is a novelty thing, right? This is like a pet rock or whatever. Or like well, people go and they buy they buy they bring sand back uh, uh, from from a beach and that they sell visited it. But these guys are actually like they have No, a, they don't even sell it. People just bring it as a souvenir. And here no. it is like you've got a can and it says on it Rocky yeah. Mountain Air. Well that's what it is. You don't what? actually open it and breathe it. No, right? people do. A bottle costs fifteen dollars. It contains about hundred and fifty inhalations. It comes with an oxygen mask. In the last three months, since they've launched the online store, they've sold about nine hundred bottles at fifteen dollars. Comes a with piece. an oxygen mask. So you can breathe it in properly. Oh, see I was just picturing a can that's or whatever that's well, sealed. That has the air in it. I didn't. I, think I thought it was basically too. to put on your shelf because it says it. No, no it's to breathe in. This is actually to breathe. They're selling bottled oxygen and uh, bottled what do you know air because they're actually two different things. So people use the terms interchangeably. Their target market: China, India, Dubai. But uh, people in Canada have also purchased a fifteen-dollar bottle of air. What I'm saying is. Guys, there's no idea too stupid, no idea too dumb to make you money online. Look at you get lots and lots and lots of hot air here on <laughs> News Talk 1010, and it costs you not one penny. I'm going to start bottling it. I'm going to sell it, but at a deal for like $7.99, <laughs> and I'll throw in a pen.
I'm going to start up a website. All right. All right. Thanks, Ed. So Ed Keenan is coming up next. And um, just remember, no idea is too dumb, guys. Not at all. Patreon.com. I'll be back next Sunday. Yes, I try. Yes, I try.